The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we'll remember the Stonewall Uprising 50 years ago and the lost promise of the gay liberation struggle. Martin Duberman will comment. But first, the Democrats after the first debates, where do we stand now? For comment and analysis, we turn to Robert Borisage. He's a longtime progressive activist and strategist, co-director of the Campaign for America's Future. That's a strategy center for the progressive movement. He's written for the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and the Washington Post, and he's a contributing editor at The Nation. Bob Borisage, welcome back. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, of course, it's seven months until the Iowa caucuses, and it's eight months until Super Tuesday, and... Of course, most voters are not paying attention to the candidates very much right now. And we know that the early front runners often don't win the nomination. We know that a lot of things are going to change in the next six to eight months. But we are still thinking about who can do best at beating Trump. And now that the first Democratic debates are over, we can see things maybe a little more clearly. Uh, Big picture for starters, what is the current state of the Democratic Party field as they gear up to challenge Trump? One thing that was noticeable in the first debate, and quite striking really, was the extent to which the ideas that Bernie Sanders brought to the campaign four years ago uh, and has championed ever since have moved the party dramatically and have have become in some ways a consensus or the beginnings of a consensus position. So even Joe Biden, running as a moderate, now endorses college-free tuition. He endorses a Green New Deal. Uh, He's called for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which used to be verboten in the Democratic Party. And now, um, while he hasn't gotten the Medicare for all, he's come close and is endorsing a public option, which, of course, uh, the administration walked away from under when he was vice president. Let's talk about Biden a little more for a minute here. Uh, the most emblematic thing he said in the debate, I thought, was, my time is up. I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was in response to Kamala Harris's critique of him for his opposition to busing. And he was so nonplussed by her charge at him that uh, he ended by saying, uh, my time is up, I'm sorry. And I thought that that phrase had many meanings. (laughs) 
a lot of the punditry at this point is that Biden did very poorly in the debates and he started out as a fragile candidate and looks much worse now. And yet his favorable rating, according to the polls, is that he's only gone down two points from 76 percent favorable to 74 percent favorable among the likely Democratic primary voters. He still has more than Bernie and Warren combined. What do you make of this discrepancy between his performance and his favorability ratings among Democratic voters? Well, uh, Barack Obama still is the most popular Democrat by far. And as his vice president, Biden benefits from that aura. And he's a likable guy. Lots of people have known him through the years. He gets enormous support out of seniors. He gets uh, an affection. He gets support out of African-Americans. And so in these early polls, a lot of which are still about name recognition, uh, it's not surprising that he's seen as somebody is both known and is seen favorably because of his uh, relationship with Obama. His problem is, as a candidate, is there is no place for him to go except down. And the reason for that is he has a record over as a senator and as uh, part of the Obama administration, which is simply indefensible, which is that the reality of this election, as in 2016, is The failure of the center is now apparent to all. And the question is, what comes next? And it's an argument about what comes next. For Biden, he has to defend votes for NAFTA, for putting China in the WTO, for the TPP, for mass incarceration, for moving NATO to the borders of of Russia, for financial deregulation, for Iraq, one after another of the calamities and mistaken decisions that had major effect, uh, he was part of or he was in favor of. Unlike, say, Sanders, who was served during that same period, but was uh, notable in his opposition to all of those decisions. And, you know, you saw the beginnings of that with Kamala Harris's attack on Biden for his position on busing. But that's just the beginning. We're going we're gonna to have a discussion about trade. We're going to have a discussion about Iraq. These are decisions that the society has come to a conclusion were, were wrongheaded, uh, and he's on the wrong side of those. And I can't imagine that over time, as more and more people start paying attention and these debates continue to go on and more and more uh, is written, that he has, no, he has any place to go except down. Let's talk about the progressives for a minute to Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. What's your assessment of where we stand after the debates? The polls show Bernie holding strong and Warren rising. Is that your sense? Yeah, there's no question Warren has has run an extraordinarily good campaign. You know, she started off with the debacle of Pocahontas and doing her her DNA test and Trump, among others, thought that 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 had sabotaged her. And she rebounded, uh, ironically, by becoming the candidate with a plan, by doing not just an idea every week, but dramatic reforms that were well done and make sense and are very powerful that include uh, some of the uh, Sanders agenda, but in some cases go beyond it. And uh, she attracted a lot of uh, positive attention and and energy and momentum out of that. The second thing she did strategically was she put all of her the $10 million of her Senate campaign fund into the uh, pot and hired the most 
staffers on the ground in Iowa in the early first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And so she is likely to have a very strong ground game in those early states. So I think she has been rising. I think uh, her performance in the debate where she was really the only uh, major candidate in the in the first night was uh, competent, and uh, she she kind of skated through that unscathed. Uh, I don't think she dominated it, but she she did very well, and voters uh, rewarded her for it. Bernie, you know, started out with higher name recognition, uh, higher uh, positives and higher negatives. Uh, he has a dedicated set of support. He still raises, uh, gets the most support out of young people and young energy. He's one of the few candidates uh, that has support both among the, about the same levels of both among whites and among people of color. And so his appeal is is still strong. The question is, does he have a ceiling on it? Obviously, the, the Clinton people, the people who were committed to Hillary Clinton, are still bitter four years later about his having the temerity to challenge her in the primaries and do well. And he's uh, he's obviously got a very negative press from a press corps that has always found him to be too radical for their uh, their taste. So he has he and his followers have an uphill battle in any case. Uh, I think he's faring well, and I think the question will be: Does that young energy translate into real activism on the ground in those early states? One of those two candidates, I would suspect, will emerge after Nevada as the progressive uh, standard bearer. A lot of my friends are worried that Warren will split the progressive vote with Bernie, and that will leave Biden way ahead in the vote and in the delegate count. Are, are you worried about that? I think there'll be a, a, a battle in the early states, but I, I assume it gets settled. Uh, you know, if Bernie wins the early state, I would assume Elizabeth will, she'll really financially not have any choice but to withdraw. If she wins... Bernie will be able to continue if he chooses to, but uh, I suspect will find it necessary, really, to throw his support to her. Biden also is not alone over there. He's got Buttigieg and he's got uh, Kamala Harris and others in a more moderate posture. And I think I think the person who is situated to emerge, and this is now all speculation, so I apologize, but in some ways the primaries have been laid out for Kamala Harris in the sense that California moved itself forward, and she comes from California and has one state right there, has massive name recognition there. Uh, she has uh, the money to compete uh, effectively in the early states and in California. If uh, Cory Booker falls by the wayside, she may well be the only uh, African-American standard bearer there uh, in, the, in the primaries, and that will help her on the Super Tuesday southern states. So she's situated well if she comes out of Iowa and Hampshire and heads into South Carolina with some momentum. There's a lot of worry in the mainstream media about the moderates, the famous moderates. <laughs> What's going to happen with the moderates? And we also saw this in the New York Review. Michael Tomaski was is worried about the moderates. If Bernie or Elizabeth Warren somehow win the nomination, this is the worry. The party establishment and the moderate Democrats will bolt, and it will be, you probably remember, like McGovern when Nixon won re-election with 49 states. Tomaski in the New York Review 
quote some polls showing how many Democratic voters today are not young or multicultural or progressive. It was a Pew poll that included independents who vote Democratic, and and it showed Mm -hmm. that only 46 percent of Democratic voters describe themselves as, quote, liberal or very liberal. 37 percent called themselves moderate. And I find this hard to believe. 15 percent of Democrats called themselves conservative. And he says this is millions of voters who are unlikely to vote for Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, and the Democrats can't do without those millions of voters. What do you think about the worries about the moderates? Well, I think a set of things. First of all, it is truly outrageous (laughs) that the notion that uh, the entire Democratic Party considers Donald Trump to be an existential threat, and yet if uh, two progressive, one progressive or another, gets the nomination, the party establishment is thinking about sitting on its hands or revolting. That is beyond belief. And then in terms of these categories called liberal, very liberal, uh, etc., in polling, they tend, people tend to have in their mind social liberalism when they think about that. They don't tend to think about economic, progressive, populist uh, economics or uh, alternative foreign policy. My own sense is that once the race begins, if Warren or Sanders were the standard bearer and the choices between one of them and Donald Trump, in some ways they are better positioned than uh, Biden, say, uh, to take on Trump. That is, people are looking for change still. These are candidates who are laying out real agenda for change and able to expose how fake Trump's populism is. Uh, and they don't bear the burden of, of having been on the wrong side of a set of determining issues over the last decades. And so I think they are well-situated to expose uh, Trump's uh, vulnerabilities and to offer people a real choice uh, for the change that they want. Whereas a moderate candidate like Biden or Buttigieg smacks of the same elite politics that have failed people and that they are looking for uh, an alternative to. And it allows Trump to run the same race he ran against Hillary, where he's the agent of change. And uh, Hillary or Biden or, or Buttigieg gets painted as the, uh, the candidate of uh, the failed status quo. So I think the polls are misleading in these categories. And the, the way the race plays out, I think it's a very dangerous thing for Democrats to assume that people want to return to normalcy as defined by uh, Joe Biden or the past, as opposed to a candidate who they believe will bring real change to, uh, to their lives. The other thing I would point out is that the progressive strategy is to expand the electorate, to bring in voters many of whom sat out the Hillary election. Hillary got 5 million fewer votes than Obama did. Those people, we're pretty sure, are not moderates. Right. And that that's a really important point. You know, the, the party pros, the operatives, always assume a, a, a given electorate, and they truly discount the importance of excitement and enthusiasm, uh, particularly on the ba- among the base. And in reality, as Obama's victories demonstrated, when when your base is excited, or as Reagan's victory in 1980s demonstrated, when your base is excited, uh, the turnout goes up, they start talking to their neighbors, they generate energy, they uh, expand the electorate, 
and you're in a much better position than in the hands of operatives who are uh, trying to count the exact number of votes who voted the last time and uh, and make sure they make uh, uh, tailored appeals to each segment of the uh, of the population and in the meantime are are depressing their own activists and and turning spirit down rather than up last thing i thought the single most important thing anybody said in either debate was bernie's closing where he said about his fellow candidates these are good people, and they have some great ideas, but he argued great ideas, good policy proposals are not going to beat Trump. He said nothing will change unless we have the guts to take on Wall Street, the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the military industrial complex, and the fossil fuel industry. That's who is opposing us. But, of course, there is a Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party, and they're going to do everything they can to stop Bernie and or Elizabeth Warren. Who do you think the Wall Street uh, Democrats want if Biden fails? How about uh, Kamala Harris? She's now tied for third with Warren. I think they're looking at Buttigieg, uh, and he's raised a lot of money in that regard. I think they will look at Kamala Harris uh, very much so. And if she continues to rise, uh, I think they will uh, see her as a as a uh, safe bet, as opposed to Warren or or Sanders. The irony of what Sanders said, which is exactly true, and is is basically a statement to Democratic candidates and voters: if you want to measure who's serious, look for who's prepared to call out the, the corporations and the lobbies and the uh, entrenched interests that stand in the way. And if you want to have a populism that opposes Trump's populism, which uh, berates bureaucrats and uh, the failed presidents of the past as opposed to those interests, you've got to name the interests that are actually the ones that are uh, rigging the rules against people. But the other irony of what Bernie's statement was, was Joe Biden the week before had, had gone to one of those Wall Street fundraisers. And he reassured them almost in exactly the same terms as Bernie, saying, don't worry, we're not going to demonize the rich. Nothing fundamental will change. No one's going to lose their standard of living. (laughs) And it was just as Sanders said, nothing will change unless we take these interests on. Biden was saying to them, don't worry, we're not taking you on, and nothing's going to fundamental is going to change. I think they defined the terms of the election the same way. They just were on opposite sides. Robert Borisage, he wrote about the Democrats after the debates for TheNation.com. Thank you, Bob. I hope we can get you back often in the months to come. That would be my pleasure. Thank you. We're still thinking about the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which you may have heard gave birth to the gay liberation movement. For comment, we turn to Martin Duberman. He's a pioneer of LGBTQ studies, the author of two dozen books. In The New Yorker recently, Masha Gessen called him a national treasure. She noted that he's 87, but he's writing faster than ever. He published a novel last year. This year he's produced a volume of memoirs, as well as a provocative new book titled, Has the Gay Movement Failed? 
Gesson says that book packs enough information and ideas for four or five more. And he's also a contributor to The Nation, where he wrote about the Stonewall anniversary. Martin Duberman was also a teacher of mine a few years ago. We've done a few of these conversations. Marty, welcome back, and congratulations on the new book, or books, I mean. Congratulations on the new books. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Well, you wrote the book on Stonewall, literally. You call it the emblematic event in modern queer history. And you say it's an empowering symbol of global proportions. And yet, you open your new piece for the nation. It hasn't turned out the way some of us had hoped. Please explain. Over, over the years, Stonewall has, has become a symbol for a great deal that was not apparent back in 1969 when the riots took place. What I, what I was referring to was... The fact that in the immediate aftermath of the riots, a whole new generation of young activists uh, appeared on the scene. Some of them had been active in, in other uh, social justice movements before the riots, but they, they now formed new organizations, uh, new organizations devoted to, quote, gay liberation. The first and most radical was indeed called the Gay Liberation Front, GLF. And GLF, to me, represents something of an ideal agenda for what might be accomplished if various minority and oppressed groups could ever get their acts together and combine their forces What has happened to the gay movement in the 50 years since GLF is what I find more than a little alarming and is the reason for my having written that book you referred to, namely, Has the Gay Movement Failed? So the Gay Liberation Front, you say, did something few of us ever attempt. I'm quoting now, they named what a better society might look like thus establishing a standard by which to measure the alternating currents of progress and defeat. What was that vision of a better society, and how is it different from what gay politics advocates now? It was different in that the the canvas was far broader. Probably as early as the mid-'70s, the gay movement became essentially a single-issue movement, devoted to gay uh, civil rights for what we now call LGBTQ people, what we then called gay and lesbian people. But GLF, in the early 70s, uh, had an agenda that uh, went far beyond the immediate interests and needs uh, of gay people themselves. They denounced everything from American capitalism and American imperialism to monogamy, the nuclear family, and the gender binary, though it, back then uh, that term gender binary was, was not in use. So uh, it, it stands in really quite stark contrast to the gay movement as we have come to know it from roughly the mid-70s down to the present day. I, I, should, I should add, though, that in the present day, there has been a real resurgence 
among the newest generation uh, of LGBTQ folks, uh, a, re- a resurgence of broad concern with the the assorted social justices uh, of of our society. A lot of a lot of this currently is still manifesting on the local level. So you have groups like Song uh, in Atlanta. Uh, Song stands for Southerners uh, on New Ground. But they are very much concerned with issues relating to gender and sexuality. But also they include any number of, of the changes which GLF some 50 years ago had advocated. And what do you make of the accomplishments and victories of the past 50 years of gay politics? Perhaps you remember it was not easy to win marriage equality or get gays in the military. Something like marriage equality wasn't even remotely on our horizon back then. What we were concerned with, if we were going out, say, for an evening on the town, was whether or not there would be police entrapment and would end up spending the night in jail. I mean, even the few gay watering holes during the summer, like Fire Island, which is an island off of Long Island, there there was one and then subsequently two primarily gay communities. Uh, And even out there, these were supposedly our places where we, we could finally, as it were, let our hair down. On the dance floor, uh, same-sex couples were not even allowed to touch. And to make sure that they did not, an employee of the, the hotel in that community was stationed on top of a ladder <laughs> oh, with a flashlight. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, and he would shine it down on couples on the dance floor, making sure that there was significant space mm. between the two people. And then at, at, at night, the big cruising ground in, in, say, Cherry Grove was the boardwalk, uh, a dark area badly lit. And what, what would happen there on a very regular, really even nightly basis was that the police in the Long Island town uh, directly across from Fire Island, called Sayville, the police would dress up their youngest, hottest cops in sort of the gay uniform of the day, which would be T-shirt, chinos, loafers, and they would send them over to cruise the boardwalk with the established purpose uh, of entrapping any gay man who approached them and tried to strike up a conversation, though it was often the undercover cops who would begin the conversation in order to meet their quota for the evening. Mm. And then, and this is hard to believe today, but once, say, an undercover cop uh, said said to this this, uh, gay guy who had, say, hi, how are you, and, uh, and had immediately handcuffed him, when the gay guy, you know, agreed to take a stroll, uh, he would then take the gay guy down to the pier where there was a big pole and would handcuff him to the pole. Ugh. 
and then go back on the boardwalk for his next prey. Uh. And then at dawn, when there were, you know, any number of gay men literally chained to a pole uh, in the dock, they would send for the police launch, and they would all be brought to a kangaroo court, sentenced, the crime published in the local newspaper, and very often what followed in train was the loss of an apartment and the loss of a job. Mm. So, yes, that's a long-winded way of saying there has been a lot of change and a lot of very welcome change. I don't mean to poo-poo any of that. It was all highly necessary and highly desirable, but it has come at a cost, and I don't think the cost is very often recognized or even believed in. I think the large majority of gay people think that it has been an unbroken story of of progress and that for all that we have gained, we haven't been forced to surrender anything in return. But from my point of view, we have in fact surrendered a great deal. You say gay people have surrendered a great deal since Stonewall. What do you mean? We have surrendered the distinctiveness of who we are, both individually and as a subculture. If you draw the analogy with black America, you know, I'm always reminded of the line from James Baldwin, which which was something like, I don't understand why we continue to beg to rent a room in a house that's burning down. Why don't we just build our own house? And I think that analogy holds in terms of the gay community. That is, we, we keep pleading to be allowed in. And the essence of that plea is, look, we're really just folks. We're exactly like you. We hold your values. We share your dreams. Only difference between us is this really insignificant matter uh, of the fact that our lust and love tend to go toward people of our own gender. What's wrong with the argument, we're just like you? To me, that's extraordinarily simplistic and perhaps even deluded, because there are many ways, and GLF pointed to them long ago in the early 70s, in which we are culturally different. And beyond even that, those ways in which we are different are not only important to us or should be, but potentially are important to mainstream heterosexual America. That is, if the mainstream was ever willing to open its ears to what we have to tell them. You say, if only the mainstream would listen to us, what would you tell the mainstream if they would listen? We, we have a lot to say about all kinds of things, including friendship and the nature of romance and the the non-satisfactions of monogamy, etc. It's a double-edged problem, as I see it. it. It isn't only that the mainstream isn't willing to listen or doesn't even know that there's anything to listen to. They don't know in part because the gay mainstream isn't telling them 
that we have anything special to contribute of relevance to them, not simply as part of ourselves. You're a historian. Do you have any insights or lessons from other uh, liberation movements in the American past? Since I started as a historian of the anti-slavery movement and, and of the institution of slavery, that, that's the analogy I often go to. What, ha- what happened with that movement, which, which I think is directly relevant, is that you know a few radicals in Boston, like William Lloyd Garrison preeminently, in the 1830s, announced publicly that slavery had to be abolished immediately and without compensation to slave owners. And for that wholly unpopular view, Garrison himself was very nearly lynched by a mob. But the radicals of the anti-slavery movement, though in that case they stood their ground, right up until and through the Civil War. They, they never changed the nature of their demands. But what did change was the way in which the general population focused not on what the abolitionists had been calling for, namely the immediate emancipation of the slaves, but rather settled for what became the Republican Party which was based on the principle of no further extension of slavery into the new territories. And I think that that same kind of pattern, I mean, if you look at the women's movement, you know, the broad-gauged agenda of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 gets watered down by the early 20th century into the single-issue suffragette movement and the broader demands that feminism had once represented uh, are lost. And it seems to me that very much the same sort of thing has happened with, with the gay movement. Martin Duberman wrote about the undelivered promise of the gay liberation struggle for The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Marty. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Sure. Finally, the Texas judge who wants to abolish prisons. That's Franklin Bynum. He's a Democratic Socialist who was elected last fall to the criminal courts in Houston. And he's John Nichols' guest this week on the Next Left podcast. Franklin Bynum says people need care, not cages. This week with John Nichols on the Next Left podcast. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. 
For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Thank you.